Hebrews chapter 3. Hopefully you have found your way there by now, and I'll pray, and we'll start. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gathering of your people. We are a people of your word. There's lots of opinions out there, lots of thoughts in the public square. We have lots of opinions and thoughts too, but we want them to be shaped by your word. We know that you speak to us. You tell us how we are to live in this world, how to be a godly and good people while we are here in this land. And we ask God that you would give us guidance this morning as we look in your word to what that will look like. So please, Lord, bless us with the knowledge from above. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the original story of what we call Little Red Riding Hood, the little girl in the story was not saved by a woodcutter. Did you know that? Tragic. She was actually eaten by the wolf. She did not make it. Just like her grandmother didn't make it. And as the story, I guess, was told over the years, somebody thought that it should be watered down just a little bit, so they changed it to have red saved in it. But the original, the intention of the original was to teach a particular kind of moral. This is the one that I found. The moral was to be children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers. For if they should do so, they may well provide dinner for a wolf. I say wolf, but there are various kinds of wolves. There are also those who are charming, quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, and sweet, who pursue young women at home and in the streets. And unfortunately, it is these gentle wolves who are the most dangerous ones of all. Little Red Riding Hood falls into the genre known as a cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. These stories were generally told to children as warnings about something bad that might happen to them. The people in the stories were examples not to follow. The Bible has plenty of cautionary examples. They are not tales, they're truths. And we're to learn from the people who have gone before us, people who have heard the promises of a saving God. They've experienced miracles, received blessings. They have rubbed elbows with the faithful, but they had hearts that wandered away into destruction. And so these people are to serve as cautionary truths for us. So listen to the cautionary truth that is given in Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So here in this passage, we are told of a cautionary people. There's a cautionary people here for us to observe. Well, who are they? It's the nation of Israel. While they were leaving Egypt in what we call the Exodus, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That is a long time. And they only wandered there for 40 years because they sinned. It was never intended to be that way. They were supposed to go in and take the land, but they sinned repeatedly and disobeyed God. And so he would not allow them to enter the promised land and find rest. And if there were ever a people that you would have expected to believe the promises of God, it would have been them. Think of what they experienced. Think of what they saw. They were saved from slavery in Egypt through the judgment of plagues that God put on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Do you remember all of those? All of those plagues that were experienced by those Egyptian people. The people of Israel did not experience any of those. They knew they were taking place. Darkness, blood, all of those things. Insects, frogs, all on the Egyptian people. They saw all of that. When Pharaoh finally told them to go, after the firstborn sons, all the firstborn of the land actually were killed. The people of the land, they paid them to leave. They didn't just want them to go. They said, here, take my jewelry, take my gold, take all of this stuff, just get out of here. And when they left, and the army of Pharaoh came chasing after them, what did God do? To save them. Their backs were against the water. They started lamenting the fact that they were leaving Egypt. And God told Moses, stand back and watch what I do. And he parted the waters so that they could walk through. And all of those people, however many thousands or hundreds of thousands that there were, they walked through on dry land. And when the army of Pharaoh came after them. God put the waters back on top, and all of them were killed. They saw all of that. God led the people by cloud during the day and by fire at night. He gave them the law from Mount Sinai in a display of his power that nobody could forget, fire and lightning and thunder to where the people said, oh, please tell him to stop talking to us. They feared for their lives. They said, Moses, you do the talking. We're afraid we're going to die. They witnessed that. When they became hungry, God fed them bread from heaven every day except the Sabbath. Six days out of the week, they woke up, bread on the ground. 
He fed them quail from the sky as well. They got water to drink from a rock. A rock. God miraculously provided for these people in every need that they had. It seems as though he would have proven himself to them. He brought them to the edge of the promised land. Told them to separate one man from each tribe to go in and spy out the land and bring back a report of all that they had seen. And what they were supposed to do is bring back the report telling how great the land was. You remember what they brought back with them as proof? They brought back a cluster of grapes and apparently it took, they had to put them on a pole and multiple people had to carry those things. The grapes were so large. God told them it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And they went in and they saw that it really was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a bountiful place that God was bringing these people to. But they also saw the people. And what did they think of them? 10 of the 12 people who came back said, there are giants in the land. They are too large for us. They will squash us like bugs if we go in. You would think that after all that these people had seen, that some, whatever they were, six and a half feet, seven footers, we don't know. They were giants to them, but God had already conquered giants. And they wouldn't believe right now when they were right there on the doorstep, right there on the doorstep of taking the promised land. They refused to believe that God would keep his word to them. This wasn't the first time that it happened. You remember the story of the golden calf? I mean, just again and again, these people were complainers. We're hungry. We want to go back and eat the food that we had in Egypt. Oh, we're thirsty. There was lots of water there in Egypt, God. They complained the whole way. And this was it. God had had enough. And the judgment that he gives on these people who rebelled that day, that is the warning that we see here in Hebrews. This is where it comes from. That generation... That 40-year generation was remembered for centuries as a caution, that cautionary tale, that cautionary truth, the people who were held out as a display in all the synagogues where God's word would go forth. And what they would say then is if these people who saw those things, if they disobeyed God's word, who is to say that you won't? If they fell away in disbelief, who's to say that you won't fall away in disbelief? That's why Psalm 95 was written, to remember those people. And that's Psalm 95 that's there quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. It was written to remember those people who had gone before. This is what the parents of the children would point to. Oh, you know what happened to those people. Don't be like them. This is what the rabbis would warn their listeners with. That generation of people saw miracles that never, 
ever would be repeated again. And yet they had no faith, and they were shut out of the land. And now the writer, he quotes this psalm to these people, people like us, who have heard the new miraculous work of the Lord, that the eternal God has taken human form to come down to earth and save a people for himself, a new kind of exodus, delivering us from the bondage and slavery of sin and the devil. And the link between his promises and his people is faith. This is what joins the people of God to the promises of God. It is faith, it is belief, it is trust in the living God that he will keep his word, that he will do just as he has said. And that is exactly the same link that there was between the old covenant people of God and his promise of a land to find rest in. They were to have faith, and this generation right here, they had none. God saved by faith back then. God still saves by faith now. And so that wilderness generation served as a caution for those people who were under the old covenant, and they still serve as a caution for the people of God today. So that's the cautionary people that we are to see. The writer here also gives us a cautionary pattern, a cautionary pattern. And thankfully, he does not just say, like I did a minute ago, don't be like them. Even though there is some value in that, is there not? You know, sometimes you might have to teach somebody, but just, just don't be like them. Don't be like them. He doesn't just do that. Don't be like those people who saw the great things and didn't believe. Though it does give us a principle to learn from them. And here's the principle that we can see. Seeing the things of God does not guarantee that you will have a heart for God. So seeing things with your eyeballs, seeing amazing things that God has done, what we see is that often people forget. Has God not done some amazing things in your own life? Hasn't he? But don't we forget? Our hearts are like that. They're fickle. But seeing the things of God, putting your eyes on them, does not guarantee that you will have a heart for God. A while back, I was at a conference, and a man, he asked a question of how we can better reach today's generation for the Lord. And one man gave an answer about how we should better understand postmodern people and the way that they think. And another man, he spoke up and disagreed with him, and he said, we need to pray for these people to see a miracle. We need to pray that God does something in their lives that they cannot deny that it was his power, meaning the miracle will make them see that God is real, and then they will believe in him. And I grant that those kinds of things occasionally happened in Scripture. I'm reminded of Naaman, you know, the foreign general who was told by the little girl that he needed to go to Israel and the God of Israel would heal him or could heal him. 
And he came and found the prophet. What did the prophet tell him to do? He said, go and wash in the river Jordan seven times. What? I've got water back there in Syria that I could have washed in. But he goes and does it anyway. And he was healed. And it certainly appeared that that man's heart was changed by seeing the power of God. But the Bible sure does seem to show far more people who witnessed supernatural power from heaven, the clear work of God. And yet, those people still found a way to deny the Lord. Far more people like that. And not just here in the wilderness generation, but think about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He walked about healing people and demonstrating the power of the kingdom. And it seems that most, by far, the mo by far most people, they did not believe he was anything more than a miracle worker or a prophet. They just wanted to see miracles. They didn't want their hearts changed. Just show me something else great. That's all they wanted. We have a statement in our culture that seeing is believing, but that doesn't really come from the Bible. This book will tell us again and again that hearing the promises of God, believing them, and living in obedience to what God has said all the way to the end, that demonstrates that you trust him. For some reason, what you see with your eyes does not always make it down into your heart. The wilderness generation saw the most astounding miracles ever worked by God on earth, and yet they did not believe that God would honor his promises to them and bring them into that land. They kept distrusting him. He just brought us out here because there's more space to kill us. There weren't enough grave sites in Egypt. Lots out here in the desert. They didn't trust his goodness. They didn't trust his word. They thought that he was malevolent after all that he had done for them. And so no, seeing is not necessarily believing. So we see twice in our passage these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, meaning as they did when they rebelled against God in the wilderness. Don't follow their example. They heard God's voice, but they hardened his, their hearts to what they heard. Now, thankfully, he doesn't just give us their example. As a cautionary truth, he gives us the pattern for their rebellion, the reason why it happened with them. He tells us why it could possibly have gone wrong with these people out there to make them reject the living God and what we can learn from them. And we see this pattern as a caution in verses 12 through 14, right there in the middle of our passage today. And it starts in verse 13 with deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. We need to be warned about the sin that is inside of us. Brothers and sisters, there is a power living inside of you that delights in evil. And there is not one person in this room that is an exception to that rule. All of you have sin, a sin nature, a sin desire that inclines itself to do what is opposed to God. It's a power that you cannot control on your own. You will do your best to manage it in your own strength. 
But sin is a wild horse that has a mind and a will of its own. And it wants your obedience to it, not to God. It's a raging river that's always looking to overflow its banks or to burst through the dam. It is an alien invader, a parasite, a disease, and its desire is always, always evil. It watches for unguarded doors, paths of least resistance. Sin is never satisfied with the status quo inside of you. It's like an invading army that always wants to gain more ground. There's always more evil to be done, more schemes to be carried out, more destruction to cause. And the aim of all it does, if it could do all that it wants to inside of you, it would lead you to unbelief, apostasy, and damnation in hell. That is what sin wants inside of you. Like a seed in the ground, sin is never willing to stay a seed. It wants to grow up into a tree and bear fruit. Fruit that is like its kind, evil, hanging from its branches. So you need to understand that sin is always plotting against you. So the writer says here that sin is deceitful. It's deceitful. And so if it were a person, deceitfulness would be its primary personality trait. If you knew him on the street, ah, oh, that guy, he's always looking to deceive. He's always scheming. That's what sin is. That's what it wants. And he wants to deceive you into thinking evil is attractive and that the voice of God is untrustworthy. That you can't believe a word that he says that your guilty pleasures should be pursued, that you deserve far better than what you have, that you're always the victim and always in the right. And so sin's pattern is to deceive so that you will begin to believe and obey evil and also deny and disobey God. And once it has tricked you, when you accept the sin and make excuses for it, it settles in and does what he also says there in verse 13. It hardens the heart. A heart that was once soft, receptive to the voice of God, that heart begins a new normal. This sin, whatever that particular sin is, you once saw it as an irritable and unwelcome guest in your home. But now you've gotten used to him. You make excuses for him to be there now. And you no longer care what anyone, even God, says about him. And at this point, you no longer believe the truth about the Lord. And maybe you fake it. You go through the motions. You find no joy in his promises, but what do you find joy in? Your sin. So like the Israelites who determined on that day in the wilderness that they would just go back to Egypt to have their sin 
So the hardened man today wants to go back to the world and just make excuses for it. This was the danger that that ancient generation faced, and it's the danger that this book is telling us that we still face today. You and I, not somebody else. You know, maybe it's morning you're thinking about all the sins that somebody else has and all the things that you see in them. This book is talking to you today. If you hear his voice, this is for us. This is personal. If you hear his voice, you need to understand that the sin is looking to deceive you and harden your heart to the voice of God so that you will walk away from him. That's its aim in you, every one of you. I've got two applications. One that is personal and one that is communal. One that is just for you yourself and then one for us as a group. Number one, you need to know your sins. You need to know your own sins. Every person in this room is not just a general sinner. We like to say that, don't we? We kind of excuse or give us a little cushion. Ah, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. But I ask, do you know your own sins that you are prone to? Because there is a sin or a group of sins that you are more inclined toward than other sins. Do you realize that about yourself? So if there's categories of sins, one of those is your primary category of sin. I would just about guarantee it. There's something that is constantly drawing you in that you're inclined to make excuses for. You need to know your own sins. You need to know where your danger is coming from. You should be familiar with these sins. They are certainly familiar with you. So what about you causes problems with other people? Just some diagnostic questions. What is it about you that causes problems with others? What causes fights? What makes you worry? What do you feel that you need to hide? Or maybe you used to feel like you should hide it, but now you don't care. Solomon told his own son, he said, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Everything flows from it. Everything flows from the heart. Pay attention to it. Guard it. Know what's going into it and obviously know what's coming out of it. Pay attention to your heart. It needs constant watching. Do not be a lazy guard or a permissive one. There's no such thing as a little sin. Because all little sins want to grow up and be big sins. Again, they're not satisfied. Every lustful look would become adultery if it could. And every adultery would become apostasy in hell. That's its aim. So little sins don't stay little. You need to know your heart. Pay attention for a careless attitude to the things of God. Little desire for his word. Little desire for fellowship with his people. Diseases show symptoms, do they not? 
so do hearts that are prone to wander. So number one, you need to know your own sins. Number two, you need the fellowship of God's people. See that in verse 13. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's saying that this is a kind of cure for a sick heart or a kind of way to guard your own heart. You need the people of God and you need those people of God to know you, to watch your back, to watch your blind spots because you can't see them, but maybe they can. They can help us to see our sin. They can keep us close to our Savior. One of the chief blessings you have in life are faithful companions for the journey. You need the people of God. And so if you find yourself alone or always wanting to be alone, you are in a dangerous place and you need to connect with God's people even just to have one person that you can talk to, confess your sins to, be encouraged by a group of people. You need the people of God in your life. I need the people of God in mine. Because the Lord does not intend for you to do this by yourself. You will be prone to disregard some warning signs in yourself. To just dismiss it. Ah, you know... I've just got anger in my family. We're Irish, you know. But I've also heard that from Germans and the English and all sorts of other people. We're just an angry sort. So we'll dismiss it in ourselves, will we not? But that faithful brother or sister in Christ, I hope they won't let you. Now, that anger is sin, brother. And that anger is not looking to just stay a little bit of anger. It's looking to spread and it's looking to grow. And I'm noticing that in you. You need people in your life that can talk to you that way. And maybe what you need to do is to be able to give certain people in your life permission to say things like that. People that you trust. You're going to have varying levels of degree of trust, the people in this room, or maybe you've got some other folks that are brothers and sisters in the Lord elsewhere. But I hope that you can find a few that you can say, man, if you ever notice that in me, maybe even tell them what your chief sin is. You see something like that in me, or you notice that I'm not around like I used to be, find me. I might be in danger. So I hope that you will see that you need the fellowship of God's people and that you will be willing to exhort one another, encourage one another, when you start to see somebody not care about the promises of God or the people of God, oh, brother, but Jesus gave his life for these people. These people. You'll spend eternity in heaven with these people. You'll be enjoying holiness forever around the throne of God with these people. You need them. And they need you. Some people like being the lone wolf. Maybe you know a few people like that. I've heard that from a few folks before. They make excuses for it. And sometimes they might even appear strong for it, but they are weaker because of it. 
They're more susceptible to the deceitfulness of sin with nobody to hold them accountable, nobody to point out their blind spots, nobody to encourage them. They do not have all the gifts in and of themselves. They need the body of Christ. Hardness might soon follow if they stay by themselves, and some form of apostasy might not be far behind. We need strong men and women of God to encourage one another. We don't just want you here on Sunday morning to just go through the motions. We don't just invite you to a men's Bible study or the ladies' one that's going on right now or some of the other gatherings. Let me just tell you, I mean, if you can come on Wednesday night to the prayer dinner, please come. I don't know what you do on, the, on those nights. We gather on the first Wednesday of every month to just be a family with each other and eat together. And the, the requirement is very low. Show up and eat, okay? And then we hope that you stick around and pray. But what we hope happens in that is that you will talk to the people of God in a way that you cannot hear on a Sunday morning. So what I normally do, okay, I get on my, my text messages on my phone on Tuesday and Wednesday, and you, if you have a phone, I have bombarded you in the past because I'm asking you, please come. It matters. It matters. We're not just asking you to come to just be here as a body so our numbers look better. No. We want this to be a holy people of God set apart for himself, and we need each other in that so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So please, if you're free on Wednesday night, even if you don't want to eat, we don't care. Please just come and be with God's people because you need them. And so in closing, brothers and sisters, please look to the people who have traveled before you on the road to the promised land whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And it was because of their unbelief. That's what we're told there in verse 19. And this has been written down for your good, to guard you on that long journey to heaven in this wilderness that we are in, to guard you so that your faith will not fail and your heart will not be hardened to God's voice. So please use these ancient people as a cautionary tale, a cautionary truth. Guard your hearts against sin like they did not Surround yourself with faithful servants of Christ to strengthen you on the way, all the way, like they did not. And keep your eyes on Jesus, who has gone before us. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Your word is truth. It cuts through all the junk that's in our hearts and all the excuses that we make and shows us what we are and what we are in danger of becoming, and it shows us our Christ, who is faithful, who is strong, who went through this wilderness world without sin and is now enjoying the glories of heaven that have been stored up for us that we can have by faith. 
please sustain us by your power all the way, all the way. And if we begin to have doubts, temptations creep in, sin looks to be getting hold of us, I pray, God, that we as a family will see that in one another, strengthen and encourage and exhort one another to keep going behind Jesus because the promises are true and the promises are good. And we will soon have them in the promised land and share in the rest that Jesus gives to us. We pray it all in his strong name and for his glory. Amen.